It's good to be here again. I was away last weekend getting my son married off. It's been a glorious week. I mean for him, for him. But appreciate Matt, Dr. Matt Stanton, who came and filled in last week and gave us a good word on godliness from First Timothy. And we're continuing now in our series on doctrine. And uh, of course, if we're going to tackle the core beliefs of the Christian faith, after beginning with God, our Redeemer and Savior, at some point we need to address our adversary, Satan. And uh, I think it's up there. It's coming. There we go. Um, and so our topic today is Satan. And uh, now for some reason, I, if we think about Western or North American faith, there's a lot of nominally religious people who would call themselves Christian or, you know, believe in God, they would say. Uh, but they really struggle to believe in Satan, even though they believe in God. Because this is where I think we feel that Christianity gets too mystical or it gets too weird to talk about Satan. And so we just don't think about him or speak about him. As if Christianity wasn't mystical enough that there is an eternal God who created all things and, you know, does miracles and the virgin birth. Like, that we can take, but, you know, Satan is weird and mystical, so we can't talk about him. And, uh, and that's normal, I guess. But... Perhaps it feels like that to us because, as the poet Charles Bordelais famously said, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. And so we all just feel a little uncomfortable talking about him because he's been doing a really good job of trying to convince, especially Western society, that there is no bad guy, there is no evil, there is nothing to worry about. Just pretend I'm not here. And it just doesn't feel comfortable to talk about the devil. And he doesn't want us to talk about him. He's happy being ignored. And he, he loves a culture that is asleep to the idea that they have an adversary. He loves a culture that ignores him or even invites him in as a friend and remodels him as, you know, some sort of misunderstood kind of party friend. You know, and in the name of inclusiveness, you know, why does Satan get such a bad rap? You know, we need to understand him, I guess. And as Ken Ami less famously riffed off of Baudelaire, the second famous trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he's the good guy. And so that's the culture we live in. Either he doesn't exist or he's weird or he's misunderstood and he's actually the good guy. We actually want to hang out with the devil because he's more fun. And that's what we face as Christians, and that's what we face even in our own lives. We can go a long time not thinking about Satan, not thinking about the reality of spiritual warfare and that we have an adversary. But as uncomfortable as it may be, there's a time and a place that we need to, to drag this old serpent out into the light and know what we're dealing with. He does exist, and he's not the good guy. And Christians need to be able to discern how and where and when our enemy is at work in the world and at work in our life. It's important because if we don't understand that Satan is a part of the equation, then the things we see in the world and the things that we experience will not add up because there will be a missing variable, or rather in our world, a missing constant. If we ignore Satan, 
There'll be something missing in all of our life equations, and we won't understand the answers we're getting in our life because we've left Satan out of it, and we're left confused, wondering why things don't add up the way we think they should. And it's because, well, we've ignored the fact that there is another element at play in the world. There's another element at play maybe in our life and our family. Now, like many paths that we walk as disciples, as we're Christians trying to walk biblically, as we apply Scripture, there are ditches on either side of our path that we can walk down as we think about the doctrine of Satan. There's a ditch on one side in which we think too little of Satan, forgetting that he exists. We ignore him. We don't count him at all in our discipleship work. On the other side of the path that we walk, there's another ditch of thinking too much about Satan. We literally include him too often or think about him too much in our Christian life. We're obsessed with him. We give him too much credit. And both of those ditches are what we want to avoid this morning and what we want to avoid as Christians. We don't want to think too much of of Satan and we don't want to think too little of Satan. We want to think biblically of Satan. And that's the path I hope we can take today as we consider briefly the reality of our adversary, the devil. And uh, if you were in our life groups in the last season, uh, you got a book on doctrine. Now, this is Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology on Doctrine, okay? So this is what I pull out when I start doing some research on some stuff. Now, what I gave you guys was this book. Yeah, you're welcome. Now, some of, you, some of your households, some of you families may not have this book, and I want every family to have this book, because I will be talking about doctrine, and it's in this book, and you don't have to get this book. I mean, you can't, I'd be thrilled if you get this book, but you can get this book, and it covers the same material, but just with a lot less pages and very big print. And so if you don't have a concise theology in your home to be able to follow along, please let us know. We'll get you one. They're 20 bucks, but don't worry about the 20 bucks. If you, don't, if you just need a book, we'll give you a book. But I'm just saying that. So if you have the concise theology, it would be pages 67 to 69 if you want to do some more background on Satan and our enemy. But as we get into this today, the path I hope we take to consider is the reality of our adversary, the devil. And we're going to consider three things, or three sections. First of all, we're going to consider some facts about Satan, who he is, what he's capable of, what he isn't capable of. Then we're going to examine his role as our enemy, the activity of Satan, the fall, sin, spiritual warfare of believers. And then finally, we're going to consider the end of Satan, both present and future, We're going to consider Satan and Jesus and what has taken place since Jesus has come. The life and work of Jesus has utterly transformed the present day and the future reality of Satan. And spoiler alert, it does not go well for Satan uh, in that encounter. Now, I'm going to have a lot of scripture references today, and I may put some of them on the screen and others I'll just refer to. Uh, If you're reading your Bible, you'll notice that Satan is in it a lot. And to try to ignore Satan, you would have to cut a lot out of the Bible. And so I am going systematic theology. That phrase means that you're not necessarily looking at one particular text and unpacking it the way we often do. When you're looking at doctrine, you're going through the Bible from cover to cover and looking at what the Bible says about a topic. And so I will be covering a lot of scripture, so I encourage you to have your Bibles open either on paper or screen, so you can always check anything I preach for yourself. So the first thing is, who is Satan? Some facts about him. Well, the first thing we have to keep in mind is that Satan is a created being. He is not equal. 
and the opposite of God, as is somehow and sometimes portrayed by deists, like there's a good God and an evil God, and they're equal, and they're battling each other. He's not the equal and opposite of Jesus, since Jesus is God. Satan is perhaps an equal but opposite to an archangel like Michael or Gabriel, and his demons are fallen angels who fell with him in rebellion. And at one time, Satan and the angels that fell with him were in good standing with God. But we're told in Jude 8 and 2 Peter that the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. In other words, Satan is an angel who rebelled. And it may be that the fall of Satan is referenced in Isaiah chapter 14, maybe the most clearly prophetic description of who Satan is as a person. And Isaiah writes, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Now in this text, in chapter 14, Isaiah is beginning his prophecy talking about an earthly king rising to power, but then his, his language seems to escalate to describe a, an attempt at usurping the powers of heaven and becoming like the most high. And that would not be unusual for prophetic writing, for the prophet to begin writing about earthly events which mirror or reflect in a shadowy form what is also taking place in the heavenly realms. And so this could be an allusion to the fall of Satan, In either case, the sin of Satan and his demons is understood to be one of pride. Satan desired to be like God, and his angels did not keep their own position of authority in the order of heaven, and and so because they would not keep their position, they were cast down. And in Genesis, it's not incidental that Satan's temptation of Adam and Eve was to have their eyes opened and be like God, it says in Genesis 3.5. That's what Satan desired. He wanted to be like God. And so he goes to Adam and Eve and he says, you know what? You can be like God too, just like I tried to be. He loves that temptation. He loves that sin. So Satan is an archangel. He's filled with pride in the beginning and still, and he's rebelling against the right order of God and causing many, perhaps a third of the angels, to fall into rebellion with him. And for at least some time prior to the New Testament, Satan still had access to God's presence. As we see Satan named in Job chapter 1 when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. So that's who Satan is. But we remember that as a created being, Satan does not share in the incommunicable attributes of God that we discussed two weeks ago. He's nothing like God. Angels, even archangels, cannot, for instance, be in more than one place at once. Satan is not omnipresent. Angels have to travel. We know that Gabriel and Michael traveled in order to reach the people they had messages for, and they could even be held by other powers for a time in a single location. And Satan is not omnipotent. As an archangel, he can be constrained by other angels and archangels, as we learn in Jude 9. And And therefore, without question, he's constantly constrained by God, as we see in the whole story of Job, that God has Satan on his leash, and he is constraining him from his full power. He's not omnipresent. He's not omnipotent. He's also not omniscient. 
He doesn't know all things. He doesn't know the future, nor can he read minds. He doesn't know what was in the minds of men the way Jesus could as the Son of God. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. So God says, I'm the only one. There's no one like me who knows what I know. So Satan is not reading your mind. He's not under every rock. He's not all-powerful. He's a created being who does not share God's attributes. Even the angels don't know the time of Jesus' second coming. There's no indication in the Bible that angels or demons have any other knowledge of the future or of anyone's thoughts other than what anybody else observing somebody would know. Daniel tells King Nebuchadnezzar that no wise man, enchanter, magician, or astrologer can tell him what his dream was or means, but only God can reveal the visions in the king's head and the times to come, he says in Daniel 2. So he's not any of these things. He doesn't have any of the powers that God has. He has less power than we usually attribute him. However, he is observant. Even though he can't read minds, he's had thousands of years to watch humanity. And if you watch somebody long enough, specifically enough, parents, you know this about your kids, it's not hard to figure out what they're thinking, right? They come downstairs, they see the cookie jar on the table, they stop dead in their tracks, they're fixed on the cookie jar, and they're telling you about their day at school while their eyes are locked on the cookie jar. And you can say, oh, yeah, and did Justin Trudeau come to school today? Yeah. (laughs) And did your teacher tell you how to shoot a machine gun? Oh, yeah, we did all of that. I think I know what you're thinking, and you're not thinking about your school day. You're thinking about the cookies. And in a much more serious way, Satan and his demons can observe us. It's not hard to figure out what most guys are thinking most of the time. Women, I admit, it's a little trickier. Because they're thinking about 300 things at the same time. But Satan and his demons can observe, and they can listen And they can be aware of what people, what arguments they've had, what the state of their heart is. So he's not omniscient, but he's observant. They can anticipate our responses and our actions to the circumstances they manufacture. And even though Satan is not omnipotent, he's still powerful, as are his followers. In the Bible, we've seen a single angel eliminate an entire army of over 200,000 soldiers in 2 Kings. And maybe that angel had the particular specialty of warfare. He's like the Jason Bourne of angels or something. But either way, angels are powerful. So don't underestimate the power of Satan either. They're literally called in Ephesians powers and authorities, they're called in Colossians 1.16. And for at least our time on earth, humans have been made a little lower than the angels. So we are not equal to them in power at this point in time. So we don't treat Satan or his demons lightly because the potential of their power is immense if it's not completely under the control of God, which it always is, and why it must be. And even though Satan is not omnipresent, we know that he has many angels that fell with him, and we don't know the number of his servants available for him. But does that mean there's a a fallen angel under every rock? Is there a demon causing every illness for every person? You know, is he the is it is some sort of satanic influence the one who's tempting you every time? Very unlikely. 
And in fact, it may be time for a bit of comfort in this message. The, the only indication the Bible gives of angelic powers being assigned to individual people is of God's angels. Hebrews chapter 1 says that God's angels, he says, of them, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So do you have a guardian angel? Probably not in the Disney sense of the word. But God's angels are not just worshiping God in heaven. They are sent out to be ministering spirits to his people. But we don't have that information about the demons. We only have that information about God's angels. So that's who Satan is. He's created, does not share in the attributes of God, but he is observant. He is powerful. He's definitely our enemy. What is his role? That brings us to the activity of Satan the fall and sin and spiritual warfare. And you may have picked up the idea, but it's gone along, that Satan is not our friend, not even a little bit. He's he's not a misunderstood guy who just wants to have fun. He's hateful. He is selfish. He is prideful. He is evil. He is a destroyer of everything that is good. Satan is not for us, but he is against us, despite whatever clever marketing he is doing in the world. He will ruin your life if he is able to, while keeping you far from God, But he will also allow you to have a very comfortable life if that keeps you far from God. In the end, he wants you to suffer with him. In terms of activity, he was present at the fall. Satan is the originator of sin. Satan sinned before any human beings did. He came into the garden to Eve and Adam when they were still in perfect relationship with God and tempted them. And Jesus says that Satan was a murderer from the beginning and the father of lies in John 8, 44. Satan is the originator of death and deception. There's a lie. There is a deception. There is a falsehood at the heart of every sinful action and thought. I just want you to think about that for a minute. Brothers and sisters, understand this. If you are wrestling with anger, with doubt, with insecurity, with resentment, whatever it is, there is a lie at the heart of your sin. You're getting deceived. You think you're not worth something. That's a lie. You think you need to get justice or retribution to get your due. That's a lie. Every sinful action and emotion has at its heart a falsehood. Satan is the father of lies, and he wants to destroy us through deception. That was a little sidebar. (laughs) But because of his pride to replace God and his failure to do so, Satan still opposes everyone and every work of God. That's his activity. He's out to oppose God. His name literally means adversary. Satan roams like a devouring lion to destroy faith, we are told in 1 Peter 5.8. He can make people sick and diseased in Acts 10.38. He can tempt people to sin in Luke 22.3-4. By his influence of people and by circumstances, he arranges temptations for us. He blinds and distracts the minds of unbelievers by various means in 2 Corinthians 4.4. And we talked about a lot of those in our series on Colossians, about philosophies and, you know, false teaching of, of people who counted themselves as wise and the distractions of the world. Those are distractions and blindness. 
So there is a spiritual battle that's going on. This is the activity of Satan as he is a, a murderer and a liar and he opposes God. And so we are in a war with him. And we must not think too little. We can't fall in the ditch of thinking too little of this spiritual battle. We as disciples need to be equipped and prepared for it. God gives his people the means by which to be equipped. Summarized most famously in Ephesians 6, 10, 10 to 20, the armor of God. And I'm just going to hit on the highlights for the sake of time. But he says in Ephesians 6, Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. This is the whole point of God equipping us this way. Because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities. Well, what did he give us? He gave us the, the belt of truth. And he gave us the breastplate of righteousness. And he gave us the gospel of peace. And he gave us the shield of faith. And he gave us the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. And then there's prayer at all times in there for all the saints. So there's the community of the saints together, praying together. You have the church to equip you. And then the mystery of the gospel. The gospel is a weapon against the devil. Ephesians 6, 11 to 20 talks about all these ways in which God has equipped you in order to resist our enemy. But now, we think about Satan, we think about him as an adversary, we think about the spiritual warfare that we have and the way that we're equipped against him. But we also have to not think too much of Satan's activity. We have to think about our own flesh. We can fall into the ditch of giving Satan too much credit, that everything is a spiritual battle, right? I missed that parking spot close to the front door of the the church. You know, Satan, you know, got that other guy in there ahead of me. (laughs) right? I mean, I'm being a little facetious. But some Christians are looking for Satan under every rock. And remember, Satan is not omnipresent, right? So I can virtually guarantee you, you've not encountered Satan personally. He may be engaged with somebody personally on the face of the earth right now, but probably not you. That doesn't mean he doesn't have servants who may be influencing you, but probably not Satan directly. But we can give him too much credit We can be looking for him under every rock. And our flesh is pretty good at sinning on its own. This is the point. We are fallen. We have sin. We're pretty competent sinners just in our own right. And I'd say that we don't need, for most of us, direct help from any fallen angel in order to sin. We can just sin really good just by ourselves. We're fully capable of sinning just from our fallen flesh. We are selfish enough, prideful enough, resentful enough, greedy enough, petty enough, hurtful enough, violent enough on our own account for the sin in our lives. We can't use Satan as a scapegoat and say, well, you know, the devil made me do it, or I've been under all this spiritual oppression. No, you're just a sinner, and you're sinning. And the Bible's equipped you to deal with that, too, which we're going to get into in just a minute. If we think about the New Testament scriptures, which were written when demonic activity was at an all-time high, with the presence of Jesus coming bodily to earth and the power of his atoning work on the cross, Satan was in red alert mode and demonic activity was prevalent at the time of Jesus. But even at that time, as the apostles are writing the Gospels and as the apostles are writing the New Testament, even at that time, we should realize, surprisingly, how little time or emphasis is given by the apostles in their writing to the church on demonic activity, and how little they felt they needed to address or equip the church in resisting demonic influences directly. 
When dealing with arguments and factions in the church, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul does not tell the church or the elders to rebuke the spirits of dissension. He just gives them practical counsel to agree and be of one mind and be united and be of one judgment. When Christians are being greedy or selfish and are taking each other to court in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul does not cast out the spirit of litigation in this assembly. He says, stop taking each other to court. Don't you know there, you could just allow yourself to be sued? Like if he needs the, if he says he owes you $1,000, just give him the $1,000. Isn't it better to just concede to your brother than to sue him in court? Almost none of the serious issues that Paul and James and Peter and John deal with in the church do they ever attribute to demonic influence or activity. They don't teach the elders any special rituals or words For casting out demons, they don't talk about localized demonic powers with influence over the church of Galatia or Ephesus. And overemphasis of the demonic is simply not found anywhere in the New Testament. So we can't underestimate, but we also can't overestimate the spiritual warfare that's taking place. Even with regard to unbelievers and the preaching of the gospel, where you would think that the spiritual battle would be strongest with our enemy... There are a few examples, a few examples of Jesus and Paul casting out demons, but only when they become particularly troublesome to their ministry. And those are not commonplace events. For the most part, the demonic is even ignored in gospel ministry until it just becomes a nuisance, and Paul finally gets frustrated with this person following him around and says, you know, cast out the demon just so we can get on with the preaching of the gospel. That's where he spends all his time is preaching the gospel. So the normal pattern of reaching the lost is not necessarily the confrontation of evil spirits, but just the gospel and presenting the gift of salvation by grace through faith and the work of Jesus Christ. And so this should be our pattern today. As we think about the activity of Satan, our pattern should be not to get all wrapped up in all this spiritual warfare stuff, which is going on, and we have Ephesians 6, and we have all the reality and the sobering warnings that the devil is a roaring lion prowling around to destroy, and we need to be aware of that on the one hand, but then not get so carried away with it that we give it more emphasis than even the apostles give it, or the New Testament gives it. And so this should be our pattern today, to focus on evangelism by the gospel and to overcome our sinful desires by the working out of our salvation and the power of the Holy Spirit in our own lives and not scapegoating things onto Satan. Well, finally, as we considered the person of Jesus, or sorry, the person of Satan and who he is and his activity against us, now we think of Jesus and we consider what has transpired between Satan and Jesus, our present reality and Satan's ultimate end. Now, it's no surprise as we think about the, uh, the, the arc of, of God's redemptive plan in the world and this adversary, Satan, who is against his people, that the arrival of Jesus would trigger the most substantial conflict and actually a transformation, a turning point in the battle with Satan and his followers. You would expect that, that, that Jesus being born and Jesus going to the cross, we should see in Scripture that, that something has changed that there's been a turning of the tide. The Old Testament records virtually no success in direct victory over the demonic. And so it's understandable that when Jesus came and he started teaching and he was healing people and casting out demons, that they were amazed and they remarked, 
What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. They had never seen this kind of victory over the demonic before. And then when you consider God's plan to finally crush the head of the serpent, as he promised in Genesis 3.15, and to inaugurate his kingdom and all the arc of history as God has been bringing this about, it seems obvious that this power would be the key to Jesus' ministry in his coming. And Jesus says as much. He says in Matthew 12, 28, he says, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come among you. This is a clue, people. I, am, I have victory over Satan, and that's the, the clue that the kingdom has come. He says, how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods? How can God come to the earth? How can Jesus come to Satan's domain and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus is saying he is bound, and I am plundering. There's a shift in power with the arrival of Jesus. The strong man is bound in his own house, and Jesus is plundering the kingdom of darkness in the church age by the power of his gospel like it has never been plundered before. The gospel is going out, and people are coming into the kingdom of light by the power of the gospel and by the work of Jesus Christ like the world has never seen before. The gospel is rolling forward unrelentingly from the cross. As Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 16, he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of death and hell are being assaulted, and they are going to fall. And then when Jesus sends out the 72 disciples on the first missionary journey, evangelical journey, they return to him saying, says, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They can't believe it. We have power over the demonic. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, some people are like, when is Jesus talking about there? I don't think that he's thinking of some time in the past or some time in the future. His disciples just came to him and said, we were just out casting out demons. And Jesus is like, yeah, I know. I was watching. Satan fell. (laughs) He's not, like, there's no non sequitur here. He's talking about now. Satan has fallen with the arrival of Jesus and the coming of his atoning work on the cross. In a very real way, Satan is now defeated. Time and time again, Jesus says, something new has happened in this battle. It has shifted. Satan has fallen. He is defeated, and he's fighting a losing war. So then we ask, if if this all changed when Jesus came, why is Satan still around? Why is he still here? Well, it's sort of like D-Day. I was trying to think of an analogy. And it's kind of like D-Day in World War II. And I know that's getting farther and farther in the past, but I'm sure you know what I'm referring to. World War II was really won in a meaningful way on June 6, 1944. But it was 11 months almost to the day later, on May 7, 1945, that Germany finally surrendered. And that's where we're living in as the church age. We're living in the days after D-Day. We're living in the months after D-Day. We're still fighting, but gaining victory after victory. We're gaining victory over a foe that's already defeated, just maybe doesn't really realize it yet. 
God laid out the plan to defeat Satan and redeem his people. Jesus struck the defining blow and did the work required on the cross. And Jesus says in Matthew 25 that eternal fire is prepared for the devil and his angels. Okay, the war is won, and we're fighting the mop-up action, so to speak. It's like D-Day. The war was over on D-Day, really. But there was 11 more months of fighting. And Satan is not yet cast away, but he's partially disarmed and mostly leashed. He watches as people enter the kingdom of heaven day by day, year after year, century after century. The church grows and grows and grows, and people are rescued from darkness into light. They are rescued from falsehoods into truth. They are rescued from death into life. And powers and principalities look on to this display of God's wisdom and mercy and wonder that's taking place in the church. Ephesians 3, 9 to 11 are fantastic verses. It says that, that powers and principalities, the angelic beings, all of them are looking at us in the church and seeing the gospel and seeing the kingdom winning these battles through the atonement of Christ and, and the righteousness of Christ and setting people free. And they look at the church in wonder at the wisdom of God. Amen, Amen indeed. And that's what's taking place. So Satan is not yet finished, but God is accomplishing his purpose even in this rearguard action. This kind of victory over Satan is a costly victory. There's no question that it is a costly victory. First of all, it cost God his son. It cost, in some sort of meaningful and significant and mysterious way, the fracturing of an eternal trinity of a relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit that had been for all time. Jesus went to the cross, and the Father had to turn his back on the sin that Jesus bore for us. It costs the world. It's costly as the world suffers the effect of our joining Satan in his sin. But the value of God's holiness is not so quickly and easily reconciled as we may think. We sometimes think, why doesn't God just, you know, snap his fingers and just solve all of this? He can do it. Yeah, you know what? God's holiness is something significant. And our rebellion is not just something we snap our fingers at. We'd like to just snap our fingers at it. But this battle will be fought for exactly as long. And Satan will suffer the loss of this battle for exactly as long as perfect justice is done for God's holiness and perfect mercy is put on display in the redeeming power of the gospel. Romans 11 talks about the time of the Gentiles, and when the time of the Gentiles has ended, God will bring about his final victory. That's the time we live in. God has a plan for exactly how this victory is going to come about, and it's going to get him the most justice and the most glory and demonstrate the most beauty in Christ Jesus. So what do we take away from this doctrine of Satan in our adversary? Remember that we want to walk this biblical path between two possible errors. We don't want to think too little of Satan and his influence, but we also don't want to be obsessed with him and dwell too much on him or give him, certainly don't give him too much credit. The Bible tells us what is true of being a disciple in the new covenant age under the reign of Jesus, who is reigning on his throne right now, and Satan is leashed and slowly losing. 
We have to remember when we think of the doctrine of Satan that Satan has been defeated. He is bound by the work of Jesus. He's leashed. He's constrained by the will of God, by the overwhelming power of the gospel and the atoning work of Jesus Christ. No one who has the Holy Spirit and has been transformed by the power of the gospel needs to fear being subject to the power of Satan and his enemies. You are free from that. He has no hold over you. Satan has no authority over believers. He cannot coexist with the Spirit of God. He will not possess you. He cannot possess you when you have the Spirit of God. We're called as disciples to live by the Spirit, equipping ourselves by all the means of grace that God has provided. He's given us his word, the spirit, prayer, the gospel, the church, our righteousness, our victory over sin, our trust or our faith in the power of God and the certainty of our salvation. All those things Ephesians 6 talked about. We have all of those things equipped. And so we are to live by the spirit equipped in those things. And finally, we know that Satan's you know, plan to accuse us and to destroy us by you know, God's own justice has been eliminated. I referred to a vision to Zechariah of what was taking place as Satan tried to accuse the high priest of God's people. In Zechariah 3, Joshua is brought and Satan, the accuser, is there. And God basically says, my paraphrase, none of that, Satan. (laughs) He's a brand snatched from the fire. You have no accusation against Joshua. You have no accusation against this representative of my people. And that vision concludes, it says, Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And it says, The angel of the Lord was standing by, and the angel of the Lord said that he's clean. Now, often in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is kind of code for Jesus (laughs) before he's incarnate. So Jesus is standing there beside his people saying, nope, there will be no accusation. Satan really thought he had us with sin. He thought God himself is just. God has to punish these people just like he did me. And God said, no, I've made a way through my son. I'm going to die. I'm going to pay the penalty. I'm going to give them my righteousness. Not only am I going to take their guilt and shame, but I'm going to clothe them in my righteousness. So Satan's got nothing. Zechariah is a picture of what's going on in the courtroom of heaven, and Satan's standing there with his legal briefs and his fancy suit. I imagine it's shark skin, you know, with like baby seal shoes or something. He's a bad dude. Uh, and he's up there trying to accuse the believers. And God says, no condemnation, no accusation. You've got nothing, Satan. This battle's been won. This court case has been settled on the cross Amen. by Jesus Christ. Jesus has defeated Satan. We are justified. We are made righteous and blameless, free of any accusation. By the power of Jesus' name. And you're probably wondering what hymn we're going to do to close. Because there's a hymn with every one of them. Well, I think you'll like it. Music team. <laughs>